Okay, so last week we had to cancel because there was a threat of a tropical storm coming in. This week nobody shows up because they got surprised last week when they showed up and nobody was here. My first year in Connecticut, we did not cancel us or we did not cancel a Sunday morning and one lady hit black ice and hit a tree. I cancel for the safety of the sheep. You know, and that's not clear because some people just don't seem to realize that they they never hear a weather report, they never look at the at a radar or anything, and they will get out in the worst weather and do injury to themselves to make it to Bible class. So I've learned it's better to keep everybody safe, which is why we, we cancel when it looks like there may be bad weather. Because sheep... <laughs> and God use, calls us sheep, and it's not a compliment. So, All right. <clears throat> Reminder of the church picnic. We'll have some more information on that within the next week. The uh, maps and everything for the food, and we'll start organizing all of that. And it takes about 45 minutes to get from here out to Orlando's place out in Patterson. And so there's a lot for the kids to do, and there's a lot of different games and volleyball and um, pickleball and some other things. So it's great to get out. And usually October is a little cooler, and it's a nice time to get out. It's usually the month when you have all the festivals and you have the Italian festival and the Greek festival and the Polish festival and all those things because it's the driest month. We're doing something to destroy that statistic by having our picnic in October when it rains. Also, this coming Sunday night on the 29th at 6 p.m., there's a speaker, Elizabeth sabatich Wolf, who was convicted of hate speech in Austria because she was teaching the truth about Islam. And she will be discussing the free speech crisis in Europe, and it's coming to a nation near you within our lifetime. And so she'll be talking about her new book, The Truth is no defense. So be here, and uh, I've had several people ask if it's going to be live-streamed. We don't know. We have to get her permission and the permission of the Act for America people who are hosting that in order to live-stream it. We don't have a problem with that, but it will be available. We, we do know that they're going to record it, and that will be available, so you can email in and <clears throat> request the, the recording. So... Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Before we open the word today, we need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, which means we need to confess sin if necessary. Confession simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin And instantly God forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We get a great picture of that in the episode that we're studying tonight in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, what a privilege it is to study your word and to learn of who you are, to learn of your righteousness, to learn of your justice, to learn that you uh, love us. You love us with a perfect love. You provided a perfect salvation for us that takes care of every sin. The sin penalty is paid by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And you've given us a grace way to recover from sin through, through confession. Father, we're thankful that we have episodes in the scripture like this that not only show, as Samuel has, the strength of David as a spiritual hero, but also his flaws, because like us, he is a sinner, and we all sin, we all fail, and there's so many lessons to learn from this as we'll focus on in the next several weeks. And Father, we pray that you will open our eyes to what is in the scripture, that we may come to understand you better. 
In Christ's name, amen. All right, as we look at these two chapters, where we talk about David's sin, the forgiveness of God, and divine discipline. We're going to look at, you may not believe this, but we're going to look at chapter 11 and the first half of chapter 12 tonight, simply because this episode should not, it ought not be chopped up. It's not good to chop some things up. It's all a contiguous whole, and we have to take it all together. Further, because it is all narrative, narrative moves a lot quicker as we study it, uh, that's important. Chapter 11 will describe David's two sins, the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and then when she is pregnant, then the cover-up, which involves uh, David's murder of Uriah, her husband. And though the soldiers of Ammon are the ones who actually kill Uriah in battle. It's all engineered by David. David gave the order, and God uh, understands that it is actually David who kills uh, Uriah. He's not getting away with it. And then in chapter 12, we see David confronted by God. God confronts David through, through a parable that Nathan the prophet gives, and there is a question as to what should be done in this parable, and David steps right in there with all of his understanding of righteousness and states what should be done, and that becomes his own, his own punishment. And then he is convicted of his sin, he confesses it, and he's forgiven right there on the spot. But there are consequences. That's one of the hardest things, I think, for Americans to understand is forgiveness doesn't mean the eradication of consequences. And you get so many people think, and I always remember uh, it comes up when there's some Christian on death row or some prisoner who has become a Christian in prison and they're going to be executed and everybody gets all sentimental about it and say, oh, but she's a believer now and so we ought not uh, execute her. No, she has committed a crime and she needs to pay the penalty. She is forgiven by God, but the crime was against the state. The sin was against God. And so we have to understand that there are consequences. There are natural consequences that take place when we sin. There are extenuating consequences which God may uh, bring to the situation, which is part of divine discipline. And a lot of the time, God is very gracious to us, and he does not uh, allow, allow us to face either the consequences or divine discipline. If he did, we would all be face-to-face um, -face with the Lord a lot sooner than we are. So God's grace keeps us alive and is very good to us much He's much better to us than we ever deserve. So we're going to look at this. We've just seen this part of Second uh, <coughs> Samuel from chapter, uh, actually, well, that's actually from chapter 10 through chapter 20 is the D David's sin and God's discipline on David for his sin and the consequence that David faces, chapters 10 and 11 set the stage, and then the rest of it from chapter 12 on, or 13 on, we see the consequences of, of David's, uh, David's sin. So we have David's sin against Bathsheba in Second Samuel 11, uh, 1 to 5, and then David's sin against God uh, in the murder of Uriah, which covers most of the rest of the chapter. You have actually only about four verses that deal with the adultery with Bathsheba, and you have some 22 verses that deal with the sin against Uriah. Then God rebukes David's sin through the prophet Nathan, and we'll study down to about verse 14 or 15 tonight, I hope. The centerpiece, as I pointed out from this chart, showing a chiasm in these uh, in these chapters is on verse 27 of chapter 11, that the Lord is displeased with David after the murder of Uriah. 
How many times can you think of where states, God states that, or the scripture states that God is displeased with a believer for their sin? This is it. So this shows how heinous this sin is in the sight of God and and the plan of God. Yet David's a believer. David doesn't lose his salvation. I remember witnessing to uh, a girl down the street when I was probably 11 or 12 years old, and she would go on and on about how you can't commit murder and you can't do this and you can't do that, uh, or you'll lose your salvation. And I went back and told my mother, who was always giving me good insight, and she said, well, David was a murderer. Paul was a murderer, and they're going to be in heaven. So that was great ammunition. She didn't have any answer for that. So, you know, that's a great thing to do with kids is training them to do uh, things of that nature. So we come to the first verse, and we read in this verse the setting it takes up where chapter 10, or chapter 11 ended. Chapter 11 began, or excuse me, where chapter 10 began. Chapter 10 is the lead up. It is the war with the Ammonites and the attack against the Ammonites because of the way they uh, mistreated David's envoys to Ammon and the way in which uh, Hanun had uh, had disgraced them, and so that began the war, and it wasn't completed. They defeated the Ammonites at that time, and then there was another attack by the Syrians from the north. We have this on the, on the, on the map here, and they came down from the north, and David defeated them. All the army of Israel went out, and they defeated them, and then the winter they would go into a hiatus because of the weather, and in the spring, more the late spring after the harvest or about the time the harvest was done, usually right after the harvest, then they would go back to war. So this is the right time, and David doesn't go, David doesn't go with them. Now, one of the things that we should note in this episode, I'm going to go back to verse 1, in this episode is that David's name is, is mentioned 23 times in this chapter. That gives us a little clue that this is all about David. Normally, as I set out my outlines, I try to make God the subject of the sentences of the descriptions of everything that is happening because uh, God is the hero in Israel. God is the hero of all the stories. He's the one who solves everybody's problem. He is the one who is directing things, whether he's bringing discipline or whatever it is. God is always the one who is overseeing the history of Israel. But in this case, this is about David and his rebellion against God. So 23 times the name of David is mentioned in the chapter, and 12 times we have the use of the Hebrew verb shalach, which means to send. And this is found seven times in the, uh, in the text, and it conveys and teaches something that uh, is barely subtle, and that is that there is a lot of subterfuge, there's a lot of intrigue and duplicity, nothing is happened directly and overtly, it's all hidden, it's devious, it's deceptive and indirect. There is a mention of the verb in, in uh, uh, several places, for example, verse 1, David sent Joab and the troops to Ammon. In verse 3, David sent someone to inquire about the identity of this beautiful woman who was out bathing on a roof. In verse 4, he sent messengers to fetch her. In verse 5, he sent uh, Bathsheba sent word to David that she was pregnant. In um, verse 6, the word shalak appears three times in that one verse. David sent a message to Joab, uh, to send Uriah to him, and um, Joab then sent Uriah back to David. 
And then in verse 14, David sent a letter by Uriah to Joab. And finally, Joab sends a message back to David reporting Uriah's death. All of this is is integral, and it's great drama. I mean, it goes back and forth, and you see this story develop and the conflict uh, between uh, David and his circumstances and what he's trying to do to avoid the consequences of his sinful behavior and how all of this just sort of snowballs into more and more uh, problems for him and his constant attempt to try to cover everything up. And that is the point in all of this is that David is a sinner. He's not a perfect king. He's not the ideal king. And the the rest of the narrative from chapter 12 till we get to about chapter uh, whatever it was in the outline, uh, near, almost to the end of the book, is all about the consequences of, of David's sin. So that becomes the focal point in the rest of the narrative. Now it begins by saying that it happened in the spring of the year, and as I said, this is when the armies would go out. In the grain harvest, the barley harvest would come uh, late in April or early May. You read different things, but it one of the reasons they would go about that time or right after that time is the army could raid the storehouses of the enemy and get grain and barley for their for their food. It was also a time when, as all the army of Israel went, the conscripts that had come, they've finished their harvest, so then they're free to leave their farms and go with the army to do battle. Uh, the weather's better. In Israel, there's some rainy season in the early part of the spring, but by the time you get to the end of April and into the beginning of May, it pretty much dries out, and you're not going to see much rain uh, after, after that. Uh, David sends Joab and his servants with him. His servants is a term that refers to the professional standing army. And these would include the foreign troops, the Philistines, the Carathites, the Pelathites. Uh, and they were the ones, if you look down in verse 11, if you look down to verse 11, you'll see that only the servants of Joab went close to the wall. They are the ones who are in the most danger. They are the ones who are at the forefront of the battle. And so uh, <clears throat> that refers to the professional troops. The rest of them is referred to as simply all Israel, the army of Israel. And then we're told they destroyed the people of Ammon. So there's a battle outside of Rabbah, and they are soundly defeated, and they retreat into the city, and then there is a siege of Rabbah. Now, this isn't quite like you think of with a medieval siege. The town, the city would be surrounded. They would try to cut off the water source. They would try to prevent any food from coming into the city or any um, messengers leaving the city who would go to some other king or some other country to ask for aid, to send an army to fight those who are besieging the city. And so this is the situation. And then we're told, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, if you've heard very many messages on this, you know that this is something that people camp out on. David shouldn't have stayed in Jerusalem. He's the king. He's supposed to go to battle. If he had been where he was supposed to be, he would not have come under temptation. I've I've taught that the first time I taught through this. I've got a couple of problems with that right now. First of all, David's empire, his nation has really grown, and he has a much larger uh, responsibility than than he had earlier. So it was not uncommon for a king to stay behind and let his main commander take the army into the field. We saw that in chapter 10. In fact, if you look at chapter 10, verse 7, David sent Joab against the Ammonites in Rabbah. And there's no hint of anything, any problem with that at all. There's nothing specifically stated that this is a problem, but it just sort of looks that way. But the reality is, even if you are where you are supposed to be, you can be tempted 
by sin and fall into sin. You don't have to be somewhere you shouldn't be to be tempted by sin. And so I think that tends to be an interpretation that comes out of our somewhat legalistic evangelical uh, heritage. Uh, David is not necessarily where he shouldn't be, but he is at a place where he will come into a, a certain temptation. So this is the second time David sends Joab against the Ammonites. He takes his uh, the army of Israel with him. So David is back mostly with the older men, the women, and the children. And he is back at the palace where it is quite comfortable. Uh, we have to remember that temptation is a test. In the... In the scripture, in the New Testament, you have a word perasmos. That's the noun, P-E-I-R-A-S-M-O-S, perasmos. And it can refer to a temptation where you are drawn or enticed to do something. Like if you're on a diet and somebody, you haven't eaten in six hours and somebody shoves a piece of chocolate cake in front of you, you are tempted to eat it. It's easy, it's right there, you're craving sugar. That's real easy to give into it. But if you've just had a meal and your appetite is satiated and somebody sticks that chocolate cake in front of you, then there is not necessarily the draw and the attraction to eat it. And so you can resist it. It's a test. So the word perasmos can either refer to that subjective enticement to sin which comes from the sin nature. When we, b- before Adam sinned, there's no subjective enticement to sin because there's no sin nature. The sin nature has an affinity to sin and so it is attracted to sin. But the temptation uh, that was set forth by the serpent is an objective temptation. It is enticing Eve to eat of the fruit to disobey God, but without any internal attraction on her part. We have we can't comprehend that because we have a sin nature. But Jesus was without a sin nature. And when Jesus is in the wilderness and he's tested by Satan, and he uses the word tempting there, translates it that way, it's an objective temptation. And the writer of Hebrews says that he was tempted in all areas, all categories as we are, yet without sin. But it's not a temptation where he is subjectively or internally drawn or attracted to sin, but it is the offer, the option, the test that he has to decide. Now, when I talk about a test, we have all kinds of tests that test our faith, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And these tests are just opportunities where we either decide to obey God or disobey God. That's what makes it a test. Not that it's difficult circumstances. It is just whether we're going to obey obey God and apply the word or disobey God and not apply the word. It may involve a, a large issue such as that which faced David, or it may involve just some thing that's not all that significant or all that relevant. And so we tell a little white lie or we exaggerate when we shouldn't, something like that, and we have failed the test. It's not a big deal necessarily in terms of the consequences, but it is, uh, we've yielded to that, to that temptation. Now in James chapter 1, we read, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. And the word there is lust. And we covered this the last week in in the the last lesson in the introduction, that we are drawn by our lusts. When we look at our diagram of the sin nature, that's which sits at the center of the sin nature in terms of this schematic. That which draws us is our desires, our lust patterns. And we all have different lust patterns, and they change from day to day. You may have one area of lust that is dominant on one day, and you have other areas of lust that are dominant on other days. People have a variety of lusts. Some people have great lust for recognition, for approbation, for approval, for 
uh, getting some kind of pat on the back, and they are motivated by those things, and so they desire those things. Other people have a tremendous lust for power, and they reside in the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and other state Capitol buildings, and you can see that on parade. Even men who are fine believers, I'm sure, struggle with that because of the nature of their position. They want power, and they want to keep that power. They have tremendous influence there. Power in and of itself is not wrong or sinful. It is the lust for power to lord it over others and to use it to control them and manipulate them. This is what happens to David. He is using his power over Bathsheba, his position and power, as a way of manipulating her into this situation. So we all have these lust patterns. They are uh, sexual lust, as we see in this passage. You have uh, lust for things, materialism lust. You have lust for money, lust for real estate. You want to live someplace. You want to get out of Houston, and you want to get out of the humidity and the heat, and you want to go someplace like Montana or Idaho where it's dry. And then you go there for the winter, and it's not quite the same thing, but... Uh, We have all kinds of things drive us to behavior that is sinful. And we would be surprised probably how much we're motivated to do things because of our sin nature, Uh, because it's very deceptive, remember. So we have those lust patterns, and that's what James is talking about. We're tempted. That's the external objective baiting of the trap. And in the situation with David, a trap is set by Satan, ultimately, and Bathsheba's the bait. So he sees the bait, and he's drawn away by his own desires, his lust pattern, his sexual lust, and he's enticed. He takes the bait. Wow, isn't she gorgeous? Calls for one of his servants. Go find out who that babe is. I I, want to see her tonight. Now, the thing is, when we get into the parable in the next chapter that Nathan says, he talks about the wealthy man who has all of these flocks and herds. And he looks at the poor man who has one wonderful little lamb. That's comparable. See, David had eight wives. So David, instead of satisfying his desires with one of his wives, he is going to take the wife of another person. So he's enticed, he takes the bait, and when desire, that is that lust pattern, has conceived, when there is action, volitional action, it gives birth to sin. And all of this can happen just within a blink of an eye. So it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full full grown, when it develops out, Then it brings forth death, not spiritual death in terms of separation from God, the penalty for sin, not physical death, although that may be a consequence, but this is talking about a death-like existence. It's the same thing that Paul is talking about in Romans 6.23 when he says, for the wages of sin is death. And many, many people take that verse out of context. They use it to talk about the wages of sin is spiritual death. But that's not what the passage is talking about. If you look at Romans 6, it's talking about the spiritual life and that the believer is not to be a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. And then Paul reminds them, remember, the wages of sin for you as a believer is death. So it's not spiritual, eternal spiritual death. It is a death-like existence. It is living like you're spiritually dead when you're spiritually alive. So James warns about that. Genesis 3, 6 talks about what happened when the woman sinned. She looks at the, at the tree, that it's good for food. That's the lust of the eyes. Uh, or the, 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 let me go back to, I think I have it. Nope. We'll get to it in First John. She looks at it that's pleasant to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. The lust of the flesh, it's good for food, and it's desirable to make one wise. 
So it's the pride of life. She wants to be wiser than God. And so she took of the fruit and she ate. In Genesis 4, 7, we have another image used here. This is the idea of a wild animal who's about to pounce on his prey. And this is God speaking to Cain. And Cain is just, he's been depressed because God rejected his offering. He's taking it out mentally on Abel. He wants to kill him, which he eventually does. And so there's this temptation to take matters into his own hand and to kill his competition. And God warns him of the danger of sin and says, if you do well, won't you be accepted? If you, In other words, if you obey me and bring the right kind of sacrifice on the basis of faith, you'll be accepted. But if you do not do well, if you're not approved, sin lies at the door. See, it's a voracious wild animal lying in wait. And its desire is for you. And that is a Hebrew word, teshuka, which is used in uh, Genesis chapter 3 when it talks about the man's desire or the woman's desire for the man as part of the curse. You will desire your husband. That's not a sexual desire, which is what has often been taught. It's not a desire that is related to love. It's a desire for dominance. It's a desire for control. This is, a, this is part of the curse, which are the negative results of sin. Having a sexual desire for your husband is a positive thing. Nothing in Genesis three fourteen down to 18 is a positive thing. It's all negatives. It's the consequence of sin. And so the, the woman, ha- this sets up the conflict between men and women in, in marriage and in everything. The woman wants to control the man who's the authority, and the, the man wants to assert his authority as a tyrant. And so it goes, and the only solution is Ephesians chapter 5, for the man to love the wife as uh, he loves himself, and for the woman to submit to the man. And you can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the passage being filled by the Spirit that precedes all of that. So in Genesis 4-7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now listen to that. When God rejected his offering, back in verse 5 and 6, Cain's reaction is that his face fell. He's depressed. He's discouraged. He's been told no, and God slapped his hand. And he goes off, and he pouts. And he's in depression, and he's angry. Now, there are a lot of people who face disappointments, rejection, hostility in life, and they do the same kind of thing. And we have all kinds of psychological terms that we use for that, kind of behavior today rather than calling it what it is, sin. And so you go into depression, and the solution is no longer dealing with the sin, confessing sin. And then even when they do, it just comes back over and over again. You keep dwelling on your emotional sin and anger and your hurt. But what God says is the solution is, but you shall take your Prozac in the morning. Is that what it says? You, go, you rule over it. You take your volition and you say, no, I am not going to yield to the t- temptation of my emotional sin, and I am going to rule over it. You know, that fits in with what we've been studying on the sufficiency of Scripture, is we live in a world today where people are so antagonistic to the first divine institution of human responsibility that they want to avoid all responsibility. It's my chemical makeup. That's the problem. It is, you know, it's my brother's fault. It's my family's fault. It's the environment's fault. God, it's your fault. That's exactly what Adam and Eve pulled when after they sinned. Lord, it's the woman you gave me. A brilliant statement. He blames both Eve and God in the same breath. It's not my fault. It's the environment. That's the problem we have with everybody who is tempted by socialism. 
I'm poor, I don't have what I want, and it's all the environment's fault. If the government would take over and make, give everybody the same amount of money, then I wouldn't have to deal with my responsibility to work and earn bread. Paul says in Second uh, Thessalonians 3, uh, if you don't work, you don't eat. Now, he's not being uncompassionate, but he's not giving people an excuse to be lazy. There's clearly uh, stipulations that Paul writes about where those who are truly in need need to be taken care of. But for those who are not truly in need, they need to work, and that's their responsibility. It all goes back to that first divine institution. In 1 John, as I pointed out the last time, that you have the makeup of, of lust. It's the lust of the flesh. It's drawn to sin, to certain things. The lust of the eyes, uh, it comes in through the eyes to our brain and we desire it. And the pride of life, that is uh, arrogance. But we're reminded that lust passes away. It is temporary. It may not seem temporary at times because you're not exercising your spiritual skills to deal with it. Okay, so what happens is in the chapter in verse 2, it starts off, it happened one evening. That sounds like, well, it just happened this way. But that is an accurate translation of the Hebrew, but it's more like, it's, that's how Hebrew reads. When they write a story, then this happened, and then that happened, and it happened this, and it happened like that. But to bring it into how we normally talk, we would just say, then one evening... Uh, David rose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. He's taken a late afternoon nap. It's now evening. It's cooled off. He goes outside. Uh, the, the, there's a nice spring uh, coolness in the air, and he's looking out. Now, the, if you haven't been to it, to Jerusalem, then you need to recognize that the whole of uh, uh, old Jerusalem, David's, David's city, the city of David, is only about seven or eight acres. It's not very large. And it's on a ridge, on the top of a ridge, that extends uh, from east, or from north to south, actually. From north to south. And at the top of this ridge, because it slopes down, at the top of the ridge was David's palace. So when he's out on his roof, he can look down on the roofs of every every building in town. Now, only the administrators and his top officials lived in the city. Everybody else lived out on their farms. That's why it wasn't so big. People were not building big cities. They only, only the officials who were helping in the upper levels of the government lived in the city of David. So that means David would know everybody who was there. Furthermore, as we come to learn who this woman is, She's Bathsheba. She's the granddaughter of Ahithophel, who is one of David's closest counselors and one of his mighty men. And her husband is Uriah the Hittite, who is one of his 30 of his best in his mighty men. And so for him to be able to see her and to be able to recognize that she was beautiful... She's got to be within probably, I would say, no further away than about 60 or 70 yards. Otherwise, he's just going to see a, a vague form there. So she's a close neighbor in a city that's not that, that large. There are some indications that maybe some people think that she was flaunting herself a little bit, knowing that none of the men were around, but David was, and so... We don't know. The text never goes into any of these details. As I pointed out last time, people tend to ask a lot of questions. Well, did she love David? Well, the better question is, did she love Uriah? And um, there are many times you have cases of adultery where the spouses truly love the, their spouse, but they get enticed into an adulterous situation and they, and they sin, but it doesn't mean they don't love their spouse. And when Uriah dies, as we see at the end of the chapter, she is going to uh, grieve quite a bit. And when the period of mourning is over, then she goes and she mar marries David. Well, some people might say, well, why would she marry David? 
Well, for a lot of very practical reasons, a woman who is left as a widow really has no one to take care of her in that culture. And so she needed to be married just as Ruth did, who was David's great-great-grandmother. She was the Moabitess whose husband died, and uh, she came back with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and they came back to uh, the area around Bethlehem where her uh, husband's family and relatives were, and eventually she marries uh, a relative, Boaz, who functions as the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. Anyway, so... Uh, there's a lot that we don't know about. The Bible doesn't emphasize a whole lot about this romantic love idea. Since the romantic era, era of the early 1800s, Americans are just suckers for sentimental, gushy kind of love. But the Bible makes only a few statements. We know Jacob loved Rachel. We know husbands are commanded to love your wives. But this isn't the kind of sentimental, gushy uh, sort of love, and that's what I meant when I was talking about this in the in the previous previous lesson. It is a biblical love that the Bible talks about, not the kind of sort of prurient interest driven by people who read too many romance novels and uh, watch too many soap operas to find out well what's really going on here. And God has uh, veiled things pretty much for us, so we don't get into a lot of prurient discussions. So David sends, inquires about the woman, and they come back and says, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, who is the son of Ahithophel, we learn later, and the wife of Uriah, uh, Uriah the Hittite. Now, David then sends messengers and took her. That doesn't say a whole lot. Takes her against her will. Is she willing? She comes to him. Uh, he lays with her. They have sexual relations. And then there's this explanation there, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her, uh, to her house. Now, the interesting thing at, in the Mosaic Law is after a woman completes her cycle, she has to wait seven days and then she brings a sacrifice to the temple, and then she is cleansed. And that's described in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 28. That means that she's pretty close to the ovulating period of her cycle, and so bingo, she gets pregnant. And that is uh, what we learn next in verse 5. The woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. So probably a couple of months has gone by for her to notice the physical signs that that she's probably pregnant. And so once she is certain of that, then she sends to David. And then when we get into this uh, next section, we see how David uh, in, intensifies his sin. He has abused his position, abused his power. He has uh, violated two of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20.13 says, you shall not murder. Exodus 20.14 says, you shall not commit adultery. In the Jewish and Protestant way in which they list the Ten uh, Commandments, these are, these are commandments number six and seven. The Roman Catholics number them a slight, they, they all have ten, but they number them a little differently. For the Catholics, that's number five and six. So we learn that uh, she is pregnant, and now she's, she's not part of the scenario anymore. She is really not named much in Scripture. She's usually referred to as the wife of Uriah the Hittite, as she is in the genealogy of Jesus, and her name Bathsheba is not mentioned. So from a divine viewpoint, God wants us to remember that she's the wife of Uriah. That's how she's always mentioned, not the wife of David, uh, even though they are, uh, they are married and she's the mother of Solomon who will be, in, she is then in the line of the, of, the, uh, of the Messiah. When we get down to verses 6 through 10, and we see how uh, David is intriguing, uh, is creating this intrigue for the, to kill uh, uh, or to, 
kill Uriah. Actually, he starts off trying just to get manipulate the situation so Uriah will come home and he'll go home, sleep in his home bed, and have relations with his wife, and then it will seem as if uh, he is the father of the child. The irony of this is if he had just done that and not been a man of integrity, he would have lived. But he is a man of integrity, and that seals his doom, as it were, because David wants to cover everything up. Now, Uriah is called Uriah the Hittite. Some have argued that the term in the text could refer to the sons of Heth, who were part of the Canaanite group that were there. Others suggest that he's just his, um, his genealogical roots are among Hittites, because there were Hittites in the area. I'm not sure. But the name Uriah is not a Hittite name. It means Yahweh is my light. Remember in Genesis 1, God created light, or. And the O can be an O, or it can easily slide into a U. It's the same basic consonant, and it covers the, the range there. So that's the Ur, or Or. And Yah is Yahweh. So his name meant Yahweh is my light. It indicates that he was a believer in Yahweh. And at this point, we see that he has much more integrity than David. So what David does is he uh, sends to Joab, and he tells him to send Uriah the Hittite to him. And so he Joab does as he's ordered to do. And when Uriah came to him, David asks, and the text says, how's Joab doing how are the people were how the people were doing and how the war prospered? The two doings and the word prosper are the Hebrew word shalom, which indicates another meaning of the word shalom. And he's actually asking, what's the condition? What's the health? What's the well-being of each? And so he gets a situation report from Uriah, and then he gets to the real heart of the matter, and he sends Uriah home. He says, go to your home, wash your feet, which you would do when you entered your house. So he's saying, go down to your house, go inside, sleep with your wife. And so Uriah departed from the king's house. Uh, David gave him some food so they could have a little party. And yet he doesn't go into the house. We're told in verse nine, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So he stays outside the palace, sleeps outside the palace, doesn't go down to his house at all, doesn't take advantage of that. And so when they told David the next day that Uriah did not go down, he brings him in, and he, he questions him, why didn't you go home last night? Why didn't you go down to your house? I, I sent you home, it's fine. Uh, you're not involved in holy war right now. And Dave, notice how Uriah responds in verse 11. The ark and Israel and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. He's not saying, at first glance, you might, we might think, well, the ark is at the battle, but that's not necessarily so. But the ark is in a temporary dwelling. It's in the tabernacle. He said the ark is in a tent. Israel and Judah are in the battlefield. They're in tents. Why should I have the comfort of my permanent home and my permanent bed? As long as they're encamped in the open fields, then I should not take advantage of these comforts. And he concludes and he says, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So he's demonstrating his integrity that he's not going to avail himself of the comforts of home while his men are in the field in tents and while the Lord's living in his tent. That first thing he says indicates his spiritual priority. Then in verse 13, David says, well, stay, have you, in verse 12, he says, stay another day and another night. And then David invites him for a banquet that night. And he is trying to get him drunk so he'll go home and sleep with Bathsheba. And so they ate and he got, Uriah got drunk. But even as a drunk, he had more integrity than David. And at e evening, he went out, uh, to lie in, on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So he stays in the barracks of the guards right there by the palace. 
So now David has to figure out how he's going to fix things because Uriah has too much integrity. We can just imagine that he was a little bit frustrated and angry, but the text doesn't make a point out of any of those things. And in verse 14 we say, uh, it says, In the morning he sent a letter to Joab. Now he wouldn't have taken out a, uh, an email. He wouldn't have grabbed a piece of paper. He would have written this, uh, probably on a piece of maybe papyrus or some something that he could conceal because he wouldn't want someone else to read this other than Joab. So he writes to Joab and he says, put Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle. In other words, attack the walls of Rabbah and put him right up against the wall where uh, those soldiers can easily shoot him and kill him. So set him up in the forefront of the hottest battle, and then when he's up there by himself, pull back so he's left all alone as a target, and they'll strike strike him down and die. Now remember, Joab is kind of like one of those hitmen in, in The Godfather. He has no compunction about killing somebody. Remember, he's the one who who killed Abner, Saul's uncle, who was a general of Saul's uncle back earlier in in 2 Samuel. Later, he's going to be the one who will uh, disobey David's order, and he's going to kill Absalom. So, And at one point after uh, some of his actions, David said, who's going to free me of this man? He was extremely vicious and violent. And so he he's looking at this, and he goes... Now I've got something on David that I can use against him later. Uh, He's just looking at this as pure, raw power politics. And now he's going to have something, something on David. So David, so Joab does exactly that. And we're told at the end of verse 17 that uh, some of the people of the servants of David, the servants of David is a term for the standing army. So some of his elite troops are killed and also just says, and Uriah the Hittite died also. So David couldn't, pu- couldn't have pulled this off without the aid of, of Joab. Now, Joab then sends a rather uh, interesting message back to David to let him know that Uriah has died. So uh, he sent, told David all the things concerning him, and he told this messenger, he's given him instructions, it says, when you finish giving him a full report on the situation, if the king gets angry because he's lost some of his elite troops, then, and he starts asking questions like, why did you get so close to the walls? Didn't you know that they would shoot? Why did you lose those men? Uh, and then reminds him of a story back in Judges chapter 8 of Abimelech, who was the son of Jerubasheth. That's another name for Gideon. And Abimelech had been made uh, or anointed king of Israel by the men of Shechem. And so there's a revolt in Thebes against him, and he goes down there, and as they uh, have a siege against this uh, tower at Thebes, a woman on top pushes a millstone off of the wall and it lands on Abimelech and kills him. So that's what Joab is doing. He's reminding him that that in siege warfare, you don't get too close to the troops, but when you do, it makes you vulnerable and you can be killed in in this way. And so um, Joab reminds him that and says he uh, he fully knows that this is what was going to happen. And so when David asks, why did you go near the wall? Just tell him. Your servant Uriah died also. Just slip that in there, and he'll understand what it was all about. Then we come to the next section where the messenger arrives, and he tells David in verses uh, 22 and 23 uh, and 24 that this is exactly what happened. And But he doesn't wait for David to tell him anything. He just gets right to the punchline in verse 24 and says, The archer shot from the wall at your servant. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. At that point in verse 25, 
David says to the messenger to return to Joab and say, don't let this thing displease you. This is sort of a, a really hypocritical thing to say and, and rather callous. Well, you're in a battle. The sword kills one. The sword kills another. Don't feel too bad about this. It's just what happens in the battle. And so you, you encourage him with that. So David's not mad. He's really, really happy with what has taken place. And then the chapter concludes... And we're told that the wife of Uriah, notice she's not called Bathsheba. The wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. Notice she doesn't go. I mean, it's not initiated by her. It's initiated by David. And he brought her to his house, and she became his, I think she's his ninth wife at this point and bore him a son. And then we have God's statement here. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So that sets us up for chapter 12. In chapter 12, it begins with the last use of the word sent. The Lord is sending, but this is not duplicitous. This is not deceptive. This is in the open. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and so David came to him, and he sits down, and he's going to tell David a little story. He says, there were two men in the city, one's rich and the other is poor. The rich man owned a lot of flocks and herds. He's got plenty of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished and it grew up together with him and with his children. See, that's the part that, you know, all analogies break down at certain points. You can't make every point in a parable mean something. And these points in the parable make it a good story, but they don't mean anything in terms of the element that is being taught. The poor man, and just emphasizing the, the tremendous love that the poor man had for his you, which by analogy is just teaching the tremendous love that Uriah had for Bathsheba. So the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. It grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food, drank from his own cup, lay in his own bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own family. So he's supposed to, in uh, Middle Eastern tradition, to throw a banquet for this traveler. And that means he is to go out and slaughter one of his lambs, one of his sheep, a cattle, or, 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 or cattle, and he does it. The traveler came. He refused to take from his own flock and her, and, and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him But he took the poor man's lamb. So he just arbitrarily steals from the poor man. And he kills the lamb and prepares a dinner for this traveler. And at this point, David's anger, it's righteous indignation. David hasn't lost his norms and standards. He still has a sense of what right and wrong is. And and see, when you sin and when I sin, we know what we're wrong. We may revel in being wrong for a while, but we know we're wrong. And when others sin, we know that. Just because we're out of fellowship doesn't mean we've lost our norms and standards. We're just not walking by the Spirit. So David's anger is greatly aroused against the man because he sees the great injustice here. And he says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, David's two sins, the adultery and the murder under the Mosaic law, under Israel's constitution, were capital crimes, and he should have been put to death. That was the penalty. But see, God in his grace at times commutes our discipline. We don't get all that we should get all that is rightly due us. And David did not. God is the only one, because God's the author of the law, who could commute the sentence. And so God is going to commute that death sentence. But the discipline that David states, that he shall restore fourfold, will become his own uh, discipline. 
he will have four different events that are all part of his divine discipline. In verse 7, then David said to, Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are that right, self-righteous, wicked, rich man. That's representing you. You are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. God says, look at how graciously I've given you everything. That's what he says to every one of us. Look at everything I've done for you. And look at, you're such an ingrate. Look at how you have abused the grace that I have given you. Verse 9, we see, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Interesting, most of the time when you have the word evil used in the scripture, in the Old Testament, it describes idolatry. And all sin at some level involves something idolatrous where we reject the authority of God. But here it is, uh, the evil is described as that which violates the Mosaic law. You have done evil in the Lord's sight, which indicates that sin is against God. We may hurt people around us, but sin is a violation of God's character. It's not a violation of the U.S. Constitution or the Texas Constitution. Sin is a violation of God's character. So when we sin, we sin against the Lord by definition of what sin is. We may also commit a crime, which means we're violating the law of Texas or the law of the United States or the law of whatever country you're in, and that makes it a crime. And it also hurts people around us. But, in, we're, but sin has to do with our relationship with the Lord. Sin is uh, violating God's righteous standard. So God's, the question is, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. And so when we look at this command, which is in verse 10, the sword will never depart from your house. So what's, and the sword represents death. The child, that's the result of the adultery, is going to die. David has a son, Ammon, who has a stepsister, Tamar, who he's lusting for. So they're going to see this sexual sin thing play itself out. And Amnon represents, or um, excuse me, Amnon rapes Tamar. Well, Tamar's very, she just goes into great depression, and she is close to Absalom, a half-brother, and Absalom then comes and he kills Amnon. So there's a second death. And then Absalom will rebel against David, and that's going to end with Absalom's death. So here you have these three deaths as well as the sexual sin that plays itself out from this root of adultery and murder. And so the uh, Nathan says, because you have despised me, this is what the Lord says through Nathan, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Notice she's not called Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. As a result of that, verse 11, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbors, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. That's what Absalom will do. He will take David's wives, and he will have sexual relationships with them on the roof of the palace to show that he's now the boss. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, this is confession. He doesn't weep and wail. He doesn't beg. He doesn't get into histrionics. He doesn't try to convince God he'll never do it again. He says, I have sinned against the Lord, period. He admits that he sinned. 
and that that sin was against the Lord. And what has David said? Well, you just are not contrite enough. Is that what he said? He said, you need a little more remorse. You need to cry a little more. Let's do some penance for a while. And you repeat the Shema about 500 times, and then maybe God will forgive you. Is that what he said? No. What he said was, and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. He admitted that he sinned. He recognized that it was a sin against God, and God instantly forgave him. That's what happens every time we confess sin. We just admit the sin, God forgives us, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But sometimes there are consequences, and there are going to be these four layers of consequences for David. In verse 14 we read, However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Next time we'll come back and we start reading about the death of the son and we go on to read about the subsequent sins that are part of this divine discipline. But the lesson here is that we can all sin and we can commit sins that seem completely out of character for us just as David did. And there may be consequences for those sins, but there's also God's forgiveness for those sins no matter what they are because Jesus paid the penalty for the sin penalty and Jesus paid for every sin and there's no sin that's too great for God's grace to cover and there's forgiveness. And then we move on. And David's going to have to move on even in the midst of all of this divine discipline. But he's going to be strengthened because God is the one who is going to strengthen him. When he's walking with the Lord, he is going to be able to surmount the consequences, the divine discipline, the suffering that comes from that. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study through this this evening, to be reminded of your grace and your goodness, all that you provided for us. That your grace means that not that you let us get away scot-free with sin, but that your grace means that you've given us the way to deal with it, to be restored to fellowship with you, to be forgiven, and that it doesn't affect our salvation because Christ paid the penalty for our sin. Now, Father, we pray that as we study through this and we study through the next, the Psalms that are related to this confession, that we may come to a greater understanding of why we confess sin, the importance of confessing sin, the need for, for forgiveness and cleansing to be able to move forward. It doesn't mean that the sin never happened. It just means that it's cleansed and we're restored to fellowship, but there may still be consequences. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.